Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat low interest rates and high inflation by getting you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And a warm, warm welcome to episode 13 in this season, which is number four. I've got to say, this is the last in this season. I'm going to take a little break and we'll be back in four weeks with a fresh slate of new and exciting guests. I think you're really going to enjoy some of those interviews, so lots to look forward to there. That said, if you're needing something in between, tomorrow I'm going to release my interview with fund manager Simon Gurgle of the Merchants Trust. Now, this is a UK-focused investment trust. It's pretty well-renowned. It's got a long history that stretches back many, many years, and it's been quite well-positioned recently, actually. The UK market has been one of those better places to be, although... <laughs> Uh, generally, markets are not great at the moment, but um, but you know, please give that a listen and let me know what you think as well. Send me in any questions uh, that you might have following that interview. But before all of that, we have our show today, and in our interview, we've got a fairly long interview, but I really wanted to get into the weeds behind this. So it's with the Investors Chronicles. Uh, funds editor Dave Baxter. So this is an FT publication uh, that's for private investors. Uh, It's a cracking um, magazine if you really want to get deep into the art of of investing. And we are going to go through all sorts of different things to do with funds because of course what we always recommend as a sensible way of of getting to your, your goals is using collectives, is using funds as a way of having a diversified approach to whatever it is that you're targeting, whether it's a geography like the UK or a style like growth or a type of asset like a share or a bond. And and funds are are really important as a tool to to access the markets. So this is the funds editor and and he basically knows all the fund managers in the UK. And we're going to go through all sorts of different things. We're going to have a little look at fund structures. So things like the open-ended structure versus investment trust, closed-ended structure. We're going to have a little look at active management using a fund manager versus sort of passive index trackers. We're going to have a look at whether brands are important. You know, do you go with a big a big company like BlackRock or a smaller minnow like Fundsmith? We're going to look at building a portfolio and how you go about doing that, making sure that it, it gets you to your financial goals then there's things like the top funds you know how are how are the big boys like scottish mortgage and fundsmith performing and then we're going to finish up on the all-important topic of esg before all of that we're going to have a look at inflation we're going to have a look at house prices we're going to see what's going on in the crypto markets with bitcoin we're then going to see how markets are doing at the moment little clue though it's not great plus in companies we've got uh, uh, a big house builder here in London that's the, the chief executive's come out and he's mentioned some stuff about about uh, the housing market and then we're going to finish up with an argument amongst some execs at a company that runs one of the most visited websites on the planet and that is Pornhub. All right, let's begin. Inflation. So I'm sure many of you will be following the inflation figures and we had a fresh 
lot of them for May. So the Consumer Prices Index, that's CPI, that's just a basket of goods and services and their prices are monitored so that we can kind of get a broad idea of what's happening with inflation. And what we saw was that it is up from where it was a year ago, 9.1%. Prices are on average 9.1% higher than 12 months ago. And that shifts us ever so slightly forward from April, where the figure was 9%. If we drill down a little bit into the figures, we can see that a big chunk of this is food and petrol. So that's part of the reason why we're feeling it so viscerally, because they're, they're two very hard things to avoid, really. Um, so yeah, it's those essentials. But also we saw rises in things like furniture, housing and tra transport has also been going up. What was interesting is we did see some declines, actually, from where we were a year ago in some areas. So clothing, recreation and culture, and also health which I, I thought was quite interesting. But overall, I think the mood is, you know, speaking to a number of the commentators that we that's, that um, speak to the show, we they're, they're disappointed, you know. What we were hoping for over the summer was a little bit of respite, given that in autumn we're going to see the price cap on energy rise again. And that means for the average household, annually, that's another 800 pounds which is scary it's really scary really considering we are moving at that point into winter um for middle-income britain they're feeling it causing a real change you know we're, we're changing the way in which we do things just to maintain that kind of financial buoyancy so we're having to cut out things like car journeys to save on petrol i mean i can really attest to that my i have a little mini cooper s not a new one and um and it drinks petrol and, and, and it's doubled the cost of, of me, me uh, you know, visiting people like my parents. So um, it's meant that I have stopped using it so much. So I can, I can see that. Cancelling streaming services is another one. And then people are also switching to, to some of those discounters like the Aldis and the Littles of this world once again, as they sort of did during that, uh, during the pandemic. So lower cost supermarkets sort of rearing. I think what's particularly worrying, and this is something that, that, that Myron Jobson from, from Interactive Investor was saying, uh, who is a, the senior personal finance analyst there uh, and who we've interviewed uh, on the show quite recently. And he was saying for low-income households, what he's hearing is that some people are skipping meals in order to save on costs, which is really, really concerning, uh, especially, as I say, as we move into winter, it's then are they going to be skipping on, on heating and, and, you know, really starting to put their lives at risk? I mean, that is that is the ultimate worry here, really. So, of course, the Bank of England uh, are pretty obsessively thinking about, uh, about all this stuff. And it means that, you know, further hikes, potentially big ones to interest rates, are to be expected. They're really going to want to put a lid on this and they will put that that priority ahead of knocking us into a recession you know if that's if that's what's got to happen they'll do that because inflation really really needs to be contained so yeah unfortunately no better news for you there all right let's move on to house prices and unfortunately I haven't really got any better news in this area either so the office of national statistics was releasing figures around uh, what they saw in the housing market in terms of price rises in april compared to where they were in April 2021, so a year before that. And what they show is that the average UK home has risen 
over those 12 months, £31,000 to £281,000. So that's a 12.4% rise, which is which is pretty strong. Um, and, you know, I, I, part of what I was thinking was you would have thought, given that inflation is, is pretty punchy, that it would start to kibosh runaway prices. But no, you know, as, as people are sort of worrying more about their day-to-day costs they're worrying you know they're, they're they uh, are deprioritizing buying large assets is kind of the theory but actually that hasn't really been been the case the ONS did say that that comparative figures do look slightly juiced by the fact that, that stamp duty holiday changes occurred this time last year but on the other side we saw big supply shocks because of covid so the stock of new homes coming to the market is quite low which of course means a bit of a bun fight when prospective buyers are all looking at, at, at a house and, and they really want it and they start negotiating uh, so that, that of course uh, helps bloat prices a little bit plus within within the house builders themselves they're finding that labor is is becoming more expensive there's a strong labor market so wages are going up is it going to continue and that's the magic question well the UK for a long time has had a structural undersupply of of of, of new homes, new starts as they call them, um, uh, and there's a there's just a handful of large builders. But those upward forces are being being uh, uh, battled a little bit in the near term by by what Myron described as this sort of affordability hurdle. Um, this is Myron from Interactive. So, in short, at some point you will knock a lot of buyers out of the equation because they simply cannot afford it you know they, they can't stretch far enough their mortgages are in terms of the, the max of their you know multiples of their salary they're kind of maxed out and there's, there's only so far that, that that they can go um so there's that and also there's our, our current predicament around inflation as i sort of mentioned before so as the cost of living crisis intensifies it makes it harder uh, to save for, for that deposit so you know that's tough plus of course rising interest rates means mortgages become more and more expensive so those things do balance out a little bit but in a little bit i i'll I'll share with you what the chief executive of barclay homes has been saying about exactly this okay cryptos i'm sure many of you will have given this a bit of a go so the question is bitcoin to hold or to fold wow Crypto markets have been in a bit of a tailspin of late. I mean, basically, people have less time. They're less bored because they're back at work and they're not sat around due to the pandemic. There's also less money around because of things like the cost of living crisis, but also because big central banks have removed lots of this cheap money as well. So there's there's less sort of cash sloshing around the system. If you'd invested last November then in Bitcoin then you would be nursing over a 70% loss and probably wondering whether total wipeout is just around the corner. The slightly good news is and this is I was chatting to Laith Calif, a, uh, a hugely respected investment analyst the head of investment analysis at AJ Bell um, and uh, you know the slightly good news is that that what we're seeing isn't actually that unusual for crypto you know I mean okay it's got a relatively brief history uh, in existence relative to sort of other assets and stuff. But, you know, 
cryptos have done this before you know in 2018 if you bought bitcoin at its peak then you would have over the course of that year lost 83 percent you know uh in, in terms of its value yet in 2020 and 21 it climbed way beyond where it was before and totally smashed new records so it implies there is a potential for a lazarus like recovery so not you know not, not all is not lost um there's a lot of infrastructure uh, within the industry a lot of industry is built around crypto and crypto trading and you know they're not going to go away quietly and of course there's other high profile proponents of the technology in general and just two to mention are elon musk i'm sure many of you uh, have seen his his uh, twittering around this uh, also matt damon as well he's a big proponent of the technology so the question becomes you know whether or not you think this is the future of money um if it's not then it's the emperor's new clothes and uh, a 70 percent loss might not be where it ends okay let's get on to the markets they're not great you know they're just not and i think if there's one thing you're going to take away is that really high inflation across the world is causing lots of central banks to raise rates pretty sharply and the fear is that a recessions are coming for economies really so things are going to be a bit grim for all sorts of things including corporate earnings which is a big part of what drives stock markets so that's the thing to sort of remember at the moment uh whether or not you think this is a great value markets are looking good value to get in now well that's that's definitely something to uh, consider um but what we're seeing is you know inflation is is starting as it starts to be around for a bit longer and the narrative is sort of growing around it and settling in then we're seeing some more wide-ranging effects on the economy one of those that i saw this week was that uk government borrowing has shot up in may so 40 by 14 billion <laughs> so this is a sort of the economic growth goes into reverse and tax receipts basically wither on the vine so uh that's not great it's sort of predicted that that uh that extra borrowing will be required for a little while and although i've mean, got to say it is lower than last year but you know um it, it's it, public finance is going to be clobbered i think i think we have to accept that for a little while around the world investors are saying gosh inflation is toppy and you know central banks will be hiking these rates and economic growth will be snuffed out as i sort of said at the top i think what's adding to the chill is that um with our last two big sort of threats to the economies the global financial crisis and the pandemic there was a snuggly comfort blanket of cheap money uh, that was that was you know the taps were turned on and it was fired in order to sort of take everyone through of course we're not we're not going to be doing that this time round um uh, because that would stoke the very thing that we're trying to we're trying to control inflation so that we because ha we haven't got that snuggly blanket it means um that uh there's a bit more worry in the markets around what these potential recessions might do to economies so that's quite interesting we also heard from the us's central bank chief jay powell in his latest remarks and he said you know what recession is a risk they're not trying to do that to 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 kill inflation but it is a risk now and that's really pummeled sentiment in us markets this week one one potentially bright spot is that when recessions loom we see the price of raw materials used to sort of make stuff 
tends to fall. Um, anything that's sort of linked to the economy and, and its activity um, can drop because obviously there'll be less demand in the case that the economy is 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 uh, less active. So you know we're seeing falls in things. I saw copper has sort of dropped quite a lot. Oil has dropped below one hundred and ten dollars a barrel, and we're seeing f- the falls in shares of on the FTSE of companies like the miners and the commodity producers. The hope is that those that oil drop might translate to the pump and it might sort of take a bit of a, a bit of the heat out of inflation. But that said, you know, oil is still 40% higher than where it was six months ago. And given the Ukraine war and sanctions on Russia, it means that some of those supply constraints um, are unlikely to ease for some time. So, uh, yeah, gloomy, <laughs> I think it's the overarching kind of feeling around this. So over the fortnight, the S&P 500 is down 6.42%. The FTSE 100 is down 5.04%. Europe's stock 600 is down 7.32%. And Japan's Nikkei 225 is down 7.35%. All right, let's get on to some company stories. I'm going to start with Barclay Homes. So this is a big house builder it is responsible for one in ten homes that are built in London and it's posted some results and it's shown that profits have climbed 6.6 percent to 2.3 billion pounds on account of the developer selling 33 percent more homes they did say that there's been a bit of a shift in the mix of homes sold towards more affordable ones with lower margins so actually that has that has affected their margins a little bit. Uh, but what was really interesting was the chief executive, Rob Perrins, talking about new starts, so new homes uh, that are being built. And he said that since 2015, they've halved and that in the coming years, they could halve again. <laughs> so, I mean, already in 2015, plenty of house price growth. So now imagine that market with a quarter of the supply that it had then. So, um yeah, interesting what that might mean for, for house prices. Um, also, London, though, in general, has actually been one of the slower-growing areas uh, generally around uh, the country, but, of course, it, it has spent a long time um, thundering ahead, I suppose. Um, the reason that they say uh, that these these new starts are, are, are really reducing is because of the rising cost of building materials, and, and a lot of that has been to do with things that we've discussed many times, the supply chain log jams, out of China and the war in Ukraine, um, but that rising prices in the market. I mean, we just talked about the ONS's recent um, uh, figures around around house prices of twelve point four percent. So you know that that is offsetting. I think a lot of uh, those, those rising costs that are going into. Um, into building the homes. They were, he was also saying, uh, Mr. Perrins, that the housing secretary, Michael Gove, has got these new levies uh, that he's imposed on house builders to pay for safety measures on flats. And that's also added to costs. Nonetheless, in a call with analysts, he mentioned that this undersupply. So I think... Uh, you know, for price house prices, it means if you're trying to get on that housing ladder, I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna get any easier anytime soon. All right, final one that took my eye. This is a, another a report in the FT. Uh, Pornhub. So Pornhub is an enormous 
porn website uh, owned by a company called MindGeek. And it's recently, MindGeek has lost two of its top executives who really built that company, Ferris Antoon, who is the CEO, and David Tassillo, who is the chief operating officer. And it basically seems that this row kind of emerged between those two key executives and the controlling shareholder, the owner of the business, Austrian Bernd Bergmeier. Uh, and he was just, he's just not happy with where the company has been taken. It has faced some existential threats in recent years. So there was an investigation that found potentially illegal material um, uh, on its site. So it had to had to and mastercard and, and visa sort of cut ties which nearly resulted in its collapse i think in 2020 um so it had to remove an awful lot of of content from its site um uh, as a re- as a result of that um that said at 2.1 billion visitors per month i mean if that was a normal website it would be stratospheric. I mean, that kind of, the, the the amount that you would be able to monetize a website with that many visitors would be phenomenal. And it sort of shows you that if you're in the game of explicit material, it's not so, it's not so, f- you, you can't monetize that in the same way. Of course, there's a lot of brands that don't want to be associated with Pornhub. So um, it sort of limits the scope of the advertising opportunities that you might be able to to offer people on a on a on a on a on a free website such as as Pornhub. Um, so in I think its revenues peaked at four hundred and sixty million dollars in twenty eighteen. Um, but it's 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 lost some of that recently uh, as its traffic has has reduced due to that the removing of, of that of that content. Nonetheless, it, I mean it's got some interesting things. I mean, removing any view you might have over um, uh, porn, it it has dramatically revolutionised video streaming um, in in and the way in which uh, content is sort of shared, video content is shared online, and that tech has, has flowed into into the mainstream industries as well so it's done some it's 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 actually from a technology point of view been quite quite interesting um there was also quite an interesting story emerged as well mr antoon mansion in montreal it was dubbed the house that porn built um it burnt down last year under what seems like i mean i don't know whether this is just journalists kind of creating sort of suspicious circumstances but it did seem a little bit suspicious i think some of the rumors and these are purely rumors i may add was that there was some sort of community disapproval of mr antoon's line of work um so uh yeah quite interesting i think you know if you want to to kind of learn a little bit about mind geek the ft exceptional uh, publication has got uh, uh, I think it's an eight episode series um, that looks exactly into MindGeep. It's called Hot Money. Um, highly recommended. Uh, give it a, give it a crack. Okay, well let's move on to our interview. So today I thought we'd focus on quite an important topic. I mean, if you think about one of the main ways in which we invest access the markets it tends to be through collectives so through funds so what i thought would be really interesting is to get a journalist who i've wanted to interview for quite some time onto the pod 
and he's from Investors Chronicle at the FT. So if you don't know Investors Chronicle, it is a magazine for self-directed investors and it shares all sorts of different articles around stuff like economics, market developments. It's got some share tips in there as well. And of course, it talks about funds. And David Baxter is the funds editor, so the perfect man to talk to about this. David, very warm welcome to the pod. Thanks very much for having me. All right, David, shall we just talk a little bit about, you know, your career, actually? You know, where did you start off and how did you get into the funds world? Yep, sure. So, um, like uh, a number of journalists, I perhaps, you know, didn't immediately kind of jump into the investment world. Uh, I trained as a journalist some years ago, around 10 or so years ago. Uh, I originally worked as a kind of local reporter, um, a newspaper in Nottingham. Then I uh, moved to London, uh, drifted into uh, kind of business-focused journalism, and uh, then the FT Group, uh, one of their other publications to to the IC, was was hiring, um, and I've been there for about seven or eight years. Um, I've worked across various different publications, um, sometimes writing for kind of professional invest- investors, people you'd you'd pay to manage your money in one form or other, and then uh, the last. Three or so years I've been at Investors Chronicle writing for kind of DIY investors who want to make the most of their uh, their wealth and their savings. Okay, and then you obviously moved into funds, so you must have interviewed quite a few fund managers over your time. I mean, what would you say is the really important thing about collectives, you know, why we should use funds? Yeah, so um, say Investors Chronicle, for example, um, caters in large part to people who invest in shares on their own. And there is, of course, an excitement to investing in shares, whether you buy in whatever it is, Next, ITV, Shell. There are interesting stories there and there are perhaps big gains to be had. Counter to that, the the appeal of kind of collectives and funds is probably a couple of main elements. So one is um, it's just much more spread out. So if you invest in, say, Shell, for example, you could have really big gains if you get it right, but you could have really big downward moves. You could lose a lot of money. You also have to pay a lot of attention, spend a lot of time kind of monitoring it. And if you simply invest directly on your own, buying the likes of shares, then it can be quite hard to monitor um, all of those holdings once you've got them. By contrast, a fund will often tend to have, say, at least around... Uh, a quite concentrated focus fund might have around 30 holdings and some can have hundreds. So you are getting a big spread of exposures. Um, so that is kind of the first point, you know, it's more spread out. Um, that should lessen your kind of risk and the kind of big ups and downs you should have. Um, and yeah, that should uh, kind of make it easier, hopefully, for you to sleep at night and you won't have to monitor it. 24-7 in most cases, you can normally kind of leave it to an extent. And um, The second point I would make, which is perhaps a bit less discussed, is the fact that funds can reach into places that you as a self-directed investor can't always do. So uh, as a DIY investor, um, you'll often be focusing on shares, um, particularly if you want to kind of grow your wealth over time. It is easy um, via the various kind of investment sites to buy into UK shares, um, to an extent, um, but then perhaps it's harder to go into some of the smaller names. 
But it is much harder, I'd say, to um, go into some of the international shares. You know, you can buy some of the big names in, for example, the US. You could buy directly into Apple, for example. But it's not always so easy to go into other markets. And kind of extending that point, there are interesting markets, um, interesting investments beyond shares. So, for example, things like property, things like um, direct infrastructure, all sorts of um, different weird and wonderful investments as well. Things like music royalties. And you just simply won't be able to do that yourself. You don't have that access. So funds offer you a way to kind of broaden your, your universe. Interesting. Okay, so specialised markets and assets. And I suppose as well, with those kind of more esoteric assets, that there's a real cost involved in buying and selling them too. It's not just access as well. So funds are actually quite a cost-effective way of investing, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you look at it anyway, if you look at, um, even if it's simply shares, so you have a fund of even just 30 shares, then, you know, they're, like you say, they're kind of doing all the investing. If you were to try and replicate that yourself, that would cost you a huge amount in different kind of trading costs. Um, and like I said, it's also just a huge amount of time, um, you know, unless you're doing it full time. And even if you are doing it full time, it's going to be incredibly hard to effectively monitor that whole portfolio. You know, funds by contrast have large dedicated teams with substantial resources that um, aren't always available to kind of your everyday person. Mm, yeah. And of course, the, I mean, the specialised nature of the work, accountancy is an enormous part of, of what fund managers learn and, and have to sort of do. And um, yeah, I don't know how, how many of us are, are naturally great accountants, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, so yeah, some really good points there. Okay, well, I mean, let's talk about some of the types of funds, right? And I think the big two categorizations are active versus passive and open versus closed. So let's deal with the first one. Um, do you want to explain briefly what the difference is and then whether you have a directional view on which one is best? <laughs> Excellent. Always good to have a view. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe we'll start with passive because it's it's somewhat simpler. Um, so, uh, you know, passive fund is also often referred to as a tracker. What you're doing there is you are simply buying a fund that will invest across a whole market. So in the UK, for example, the FTSE 100, which is full of all those kind of big companies, like I mentioned Shell before, the S&P 500, the US market, which is dominated by those other names I mentioned, like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and so on. Um, people often talk about passives being really cheap. Um, they will charge you an annual fee that is uh, very low. So with those mainstream markets I mentioned, you wouldn't really expect to pay more than something like 0.1% of um, the amount you've invested. So it is really cheap. What I think is more important, people can get very caught up in the, the cost debate and perhaps we can you know, continue that further. But what I think is more important with passives is um, kind of what I mentioned earlier, you know, diversification. So FTSE 100, as the name suggests, tends to have 100 or around 100 stocks, S&P 500, again, you've got 500 different companies, you're spread out across the whole market. So you are getting a really well spread out um, exposure. And that just kind of offsets the risk of, you know, one individual thing going wrong with a company. Um, if, if a company goes bust, if a company has problems, over time, the market's just going to sort that out. And it will over time, markets do tend to rise. You know, we do have market crashes. And recently, we've had, you know, some really big kind of heart-wrenching drops in markets. But over time, it should kind of move upwards. 
Um, so that's the main appeal of passives. Um, active by contrast. Um, so to again tackle the, the the kind of fee side of things, active gets criticised for being more expensive. Um, those fees have come down a lot over the years. Um, I do think that matters, particularly if you are um, using an active fund that isn't kind of beating the market. But it's the beating the market point that is much more important, in my opinion. So what you're doing with an active fund is you are normally, they do have slightly different remits sometimes, but normally you're paying someone to try and generate the most growth or generate the most income um, or do well in certain scenarios. So they are, you know, saying, I've, I've picked the 50 most promising stocks in the UK or I've targeted this interesting theme. And you want them to be doing that. So you want the fund to be outperforming the relevant market um, over kind of a decent period and you want it to be doing so fairly consistently. I mean, it is worth noting that funds have different um, different preferences, different biases, different styles, and these things all kind of wash in and out of favour at different points. So if you're going to use active funds in particular, you sometimes want a mixture of different approaches so that in theory they should kind of offset each other um, but really with active you are taking more of a kind of a focused approach in the hope most of the time that you will be outperforming the market though like I said a few active funds will do things like they will uh, attempt to protect your cash or you know offer you a kind of less volatile ride or as I mentioned there are income funds especially if you're older and you want just to kind of generate an income for your retirement from what you've saved over your your working life um and then uh, i'll just get into one other distinction on the active front um so this is a bit more technical but it is interesting especially as you get more into funds you may want to explore the options um with active you have what's called open-ended and closed-ended um so the vast majority of money and funds in the UK are still in open-ended funds. They are relatively simple. So um, you'll basically buy units in a fund. So you are um, sort of directly giving cash to that fund, buying a little chunk of that fund, and they will invest it. And hopefully they will do what you want. Um, a, a problem with that is that you you can fairly quickly kind of get out of the fund. You can, within a few days, demand your cash back. And that can create some problems for the fund itself. It means that they can't always invest in things which are kind of difficult to buy and hold quickly. So um, the fund just sort of it concertinas, doesn't it? Like an accordion. It just <laughs> grows and shrinks as as money comes in exactly. or flows out. Yeah. The problem is you've got a bunch of assets in that fund. And if one of them is, I don't know, a hotel and, you know, you're not going to be able to sell that very easily, then um, that can be that can be the problem is when it needs, particularly yeah. when markets are going down and it needs to raise cash to give that back to investors. That's the problem with these kind of funds, right? Yeah. To roll out the industry jargon, it's called a liquidity mismatch. So you, right. you can get your money back within two or three days. But like you say, you know, if you if you hold physical assets and there were physical open-ended property funds that got into trouble mm. a few years ago and have kept mm. getting into trouble to mm. different degrees, you know, you can't you can't sell a building within two or three days. Yeah. Um so to move on then to closed-ended mm. um i mean that's one of the differences a, a closed-ended fund has um, what's called a fixed pool capital so they kind of launch they raise a certain amount of money and you're not directly giving your money to or taking your money from the fund manager what happens is um the investment trust or closed-ended fund has shares 
those shares are trading on the secondary market. So if you want to sell out, you're selling out to a different investor. Um, that means that they don't have to deal with that um, kind of accordion effect you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, if people are kind of moving out of the funds and that doesn't sell, force them to sell things which they might not be able to quickly sell. So the, the shares of the fund are sort of separated from the assets, whereas yeah. in an open-ended, yeah. they're sort of one in the same, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then closed-ended in general um, is more complicated. So it mm. has, in, in many areas, it has been found to uh, kind of outperform open-ended over time because of certain things it can do. But just to touch on a couple of those, um, because a closed-ended fund manager doesn't have to worry about kind of um, cash moving in and out of the fund, they can buy stuff that is kind of harder to sell so they can go into areas we've mentioned like property like infrastructure mm. like music royalties and all mm. sorts of weird and wonderful areas mm. where uh, there's that, lots of opportunity yeah there's there's all sorts of kind of interesting new growth areas that in theory shouldn't be so um connected to equity markets so if equity markets are struggling some areas like infrastructure are seen as being more um i guess economically insensitive mm. so if we had a recession mm then in theory, those assets should keep kind of chugging, chugging along and just kind of doing their job. So these are what we might call alternative asset classes, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the idea of those, so your main ones are your, your, your shares, so they're sometimes called equities as well, and then you've got bonds. And they're your two main ones. One, you know, shares dial up your risk, bonds dial down your risk. Yeah. And then you've got these alternatives, which then offer this diversification into assets that should move differently, right? To the rest of the mainstream yeah. markets. Yeah, and people, so there are questions about bonds, um, you know, whether they can still protect you and they, they have struggled recently. And also bonds don't generate the same income that they perhaps did in the past. So alternatives are sometimes seen as kind of filling that gap. So they right. should hopefully be able to, some parts of alternatives should be able to protect you in downtimes and also some areas of alternatives if you are kind of wanting income from from what you hold they should be able to provide you that in a relatively steady way yes okay also i should just mention as well we say closed ended we mean investment trusts yes. here that's yeah, what they're, they're clarify, mainly yeah. called yeah, yeah yeah just just to touch on a couple of other kind of investment trust specialisms they can do something called uh, gearing so they're basically taking on debt um, what they're doing with that debt is they're kind of investing more in their, their chosen assets. That means that um, if those assets, if the shares they hold, for example, are performing well, then they've got more exposure so they can have bigger gains. And that's one reason over, over time they have tended to outperform open-ended funds. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you have a market crash, mm -hmm. those investment trusts are going to get hit harder. Um, mm -hmm. You will also see some of those exaggerated ups and downs because of the fact that investment trusts are um, on the on the stock market. Um, share prices can be very volatile. And um, even if you have a relatively defensive investment trust, if you have a big kind of fall in markets, then at least temporarily they might get caught up in that. And in fact, this is the thing with, you know, to be remembered with lots of investments as well, is that market sentiment plays a part into how those things can be priced. So even you could have a great company, but at a bad time in a market, you know, the UK market during that Brexit malaise kind of time <laughs> was generally shunned by a lot of investors, which meant great companies were sort of unfairly punished, I suppose. So that's yeah. that's the thing with investment trust. Their shares, they're traded on the stock exchange, so they can get caught up in those, yeah. those sentiments. Yeah. So.
And if you, one final thing I trust, if you want to kind of measure that, you, you mentioned the kind of sentiment, whether you're going with or against the crowd, there's what's called kind of share price premiums and discounts. So mm-hmm. that's basically um, how the value of the share is or the price of the share is um, compared with the kind of underlying value of what the trust holds. And you can find you get discounts where you're effectively buying, say, 100 pence worth of something for 97 pence, or you could get a premium where you're paying more than that 100%, 100 pence to get the 100 pence of assets. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're savvy, I mean, marketing timing is impossible or not impossible, but if you're kind of long-termist, then you can... Um, buying at discounts and also premiums can sometimes be a warning that you know maybe things are overheated or if Mm. something's going to go wrong then you may stand to lose more Mm. okay and so i mean that's so it's some really fascinating sort of active strategies that you can get involved in Mm. i suppose my final question to you on that is you know a lot of the robo advisors have gone for the Mm. passive route in terms of what they offer and these these are the new breed of of platforms right very simple portfolios and what i, I heard a i won't mention her name but a but a famous <laughs> ceo of one of the robo advisors spoke to me and said that the reason why they did that was because they were swapping the certainty of lower costs for the uncertainty of outperformance um so i mean what would you say to that do you think active is worth it it's worth punting for those fund managers who really shoot the lights out and really grow your wealth or do you think that certainty of lower costs and the lower drag that has on your performance Mm. over time is something that's worthwhile i think to massively sit on the fence it depends (laughs) on (laughs) on what you want (laughs) given your remit (laughs) yeah exactly yeah um yeah so i i I think if it, it depends how engaged an investor you are and how how comfortable you are with those risks and also how much you enjoy the game of investing you know some Mm. say the people i write for they they love investing they it's a hobby for them they kind of they build their portfolios and they enjoy kind of you know fiddling around with them and monitoring them um but if you want something where you just don't have to think about it you just invest regularly you're just kind of over time it should kind of you know compounds and give you those gains then passives are a good way to go and I have been in the past mm. um but yeah if you if you really want to kind of maximize your returns and if you enjoy the ins and outs of investing and you enjoy kind of doing your own research then you know active can be really good and you know if you look at the figures um they're never particularly flattering for active so there's very there's very small proportion that tends to kind of consistently outperform mm. but if you look at the the winners, they, you know, they have done massively better over time than the passives. And then when you kind of compound all that over time, that can make a huge difference. And you you have people, you know, talking about some of the some of the kind of big funds that have done really well. Some people have been able to retire earlier because they have invested with someone like you know Fundsmith Equity or some mm. of those kind of success stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you if you are kind of willing to um, yeah, take hold of that uncertainty you mentioned, then it, it can be a good route. Okay, brilliant. So I'm a um, someone who really wants to get involved in this. I'm going to aim for shooting the lights out and I want to <laughs> choose a great active fund. What's your top tips for doing that? Yeah, I, I think it's it's all about 
what you want in different respects. You when when you buy something and also when you're reviewing a holding, you need to keep asking and people do forget this quite easily. You need to keep asking what it is you want out of the holding. So if you're going for the kind of high octane stuff, then perhaps you need to think about um, you know, what what are the interesting themes? What are kind of the future themes? Is it technology? Is it, you know, the future of um, kind of scientific breakthroughs and that kind of thing? Um, is it different consumer trends, you know, like aging populations, all sorts of things like that? You know, what, where do you think the kind of money is going to be made? Um, and which funds are targeting that? Because you can look at... Um, you know, funds have to every month publish something called a fact sheet, which is kind of a summary of the funds and its biggest holdings. That gives you a little glimpse. But if if you kind of root around, many active funds will provide regular commentaries and updates and reports. And you can get a sense of what the manager is trying to do. And perhaps you can also watch things like webinars and presentations and just kind of see what their what their particular vision is. Um, I think it's also worth looking at things like process um i mean people people might argue process and metrics become a little less important and a little less weighty when you're going for the more high octane thematic stuff because perhaps those a lot of those holdings are you know things that either do incredibly well or just don't do well and you hopefully get enough of the outperformers to kind of to carry you through um but it is worth looking at kind of what they're processes you know how do they judge a good company um what are they looking at are they looking at kind of solid enough metrics um and also i mean this can be overstated over time unfortunately this is the one of the, one of the most solid things investors have to go on although they are always warned not to go on it too heavily but there is track record as well mm. um but you you do have to be careful with that i mean if a fund is performing really well you perhaps need to look at why. So there, there are funds, for example, in if we cast our minds back to 2020, certain funds seemed to have, um, you know, perfectly prepared almost for the pandemic. Mm. It, was, it was very eerie. And there were certain trends like kind of um, working from home and the uh, increased digitalization of our, our working and personal lives or even things like kind of food delivery companies and all sorts of different trends they were massively accelerated they were portfolios that made absolutely enormous gains mm. you know 100 percent gains mm. in a year mm. and you sometimes with things like that you need to ask is that kind of a, a one-off that's massively boosted performance mm. or is that something that's kind of um going to keep giving me at least some sort of gains over time mm. Just one other point I'd make on track record is it can be quite useful. I, I mentioned earlier that it's really handy to try and understand what style and what approach a fund has and the circumstances in which you might expect it to perform well or to perform poorly because these things do go in cycles. Um, it, it's good just to look at different... I like to look at different kind of um, time periods and different moments in markets to see... Um, how a particular fund has done. So some of the kind of big funds um, that people have done very well out of in the last decade, and I've already mentioned Fundsmith Equity, they've had a, a shocker of a, a six months or so because um, things, you know, interest rates are moving up and people are worrying about so-called growth stocks where you're effectively 
paying up for good performance in the future and that they're selling out those stocks. They're selling out of tech stocks. They've been selling out of kind of more speculative stuff in the US and um, a lot of those funds have been getting really, really beaten up. Um, that shouldn't necessarily be surprising if you understand what those funds are targeting mm. um, and you just kind of need a, a different mix of funds to perhaps try and kind of offset mm. Um, mm. what's going on. As always, it's diversification, isn't it? That is yes. <laughs> it's a key important thing there. And I think you raised some really interesting points. I mean, the the um you know, the three things you're sort of saying is have a look at the, the, the trends that it's kind of targeting, see if it's something mm. that you agree with, and then see what the process of the fund manager is and if that's something that you kind of agree with, and then have a look at the long term performance. Um but with that long term performance, uh you've just this is why that that note of caution is sort of the regulator puts it out there, really, because yeah. you mentioned there the sort of lockdown trends. And then there's longer trends as well, like the, you know, hi, basically high quality companies and, and, and growth companies that went over a decade. But now that might be changing as well. So yeah. You, yeah. so it, it's all of these things. I mean, basically, the longer the performance, the better, I suppose, because you're seeing the fund and how it. Um, reacts through quite a few different cycles of the market and the economy, right? Yeah, and if if it's kind of if it has a record of having moved through these difficult times for its particular style and then kind of recovers, or you know, some trends, some managers have made their names by kind of bucking the trend when when things have gone wrong. You know, the financial crash. You had a few managers here and there who just made really savvy calls and really kind of protected their investors. Mm. That that can be quite important. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I think what you what you say is 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 really key. You know, you need to look at um, whether they have long term consistency, um, and if they have had problems. You know, I've, I've mentioned some of the big names having a shocker recently it's not necessarily the end of the world you just need to you need to see if you can explain it um and on the other side of the coin if you're in an environment where a fund should be doing well so you have so-called value funds you know they buy more economically sensitive shares they might buy things like banks things mm. like energy stocks mm. they've been doing well or at least better in the last six months and names like Fundsmith. Mm. If if one of those funds isn't doing well over that period, you perhaps need to just look at it and look at their commentaries and see, you know, is there a reason that that they're kind of not doing what they should be doing? Well then it's sort of it then we then go on to um I which I think was quite quite an interesting thing to talk about really is this importance of brand. Mm. And you know, there are these massive asset managers out there like BlackRock, which now I think <laughs> it's over ten trillion, is it, that they have under management? Oh, maybe yeah, huge. It's whatever it is. Just phenomenal. And then mm. they decide to do something and, and the world moves now pretty much. Um so I just I just wonder but uh, but but of course we also have these tiny little boutiques that pop up mm. and you've mentioned a very famous one there Fundsmith you know yeah. that is only I think it was 2011 was it when it was uh, yeah 2010 late 2010, 2010 I think yeah. late 2010 was it okay um that's a tiny minnow so I suppose what what are are there any disadvantages or advantages to the size of the company and you know do you have a have a preference do you think brand is that important so Starting with the kind of big brands, um, there are perhaps some of the maybe kind of more obvious advantages that might spring to mind, I think. So one, one is resources. Um, you mentioned BlackRock is huge and there are many other kind of huge asset managers. 
what they can do, particularly if you're researching an area that's quite esoteric or, you know, you, you don't have you don't have lots of information out there already. You need to dig quite a lot, you know, whether that is kind of these alternative assets we discussed or whether it's, for example, um, you know, smaller companies are famously there isn't much research out on them. So in theory, an active manager can do well because they can go and dig in the weeds themselves and find some interesting companies that are perhaps underrated for the wrong reason. Um, so there is there is that resource. Um, sometimes the resources can be useful in other respects, say, it, you know, it's useful promoting a fund. And if you're, if you're an investment trust, that can be quite important because... You, those shares are so affected by sentiment and if you can get more investors in the door that might kind of keep you away from the shares trading on those big discounts that we mentioned so that is all very important um having said that i i don't i think sometimes the team's important the process is important but also um and this is important when you look at what they call boutiques those kind of smaller firms um independence is very important so sometimes you could criticize some big firms for perhaps being too controlling of fund managers or you know perhaps if you're a, a big kind of firm you might be under more pressure to not underperform in the short term and I know that sounds like a good thing at first but you know you Really, with active managers, you want to kind of leave them to take those bets. You know, you can you can buy shares. If you want to buy shares cheap, cheaply, sometimes you need to do them when they're out of favour. Um, and there are many cases where a, a kind of share has done very well, but for quite some time, the market has really disliked it. And one good example in the US is, is Microsoft, just to give one. Um, so boutiques in theory and there are some good examples of this they can be better at just kind of leaving managers and sticking to the process not really getting so caught up with all the kind of big you know corporate distractions that can occur i suppose one concern um about boutiques again it relates back to resources really so if um sometimes you get fund managers like to kind of strike out uh, on their own so a famous one that went wrong is Neil Woodford famous one that went right is Terry Smith or Nick Train is another one a worry that sometimes can appear with boutiques is that um, a fund manager can do really well at a big firm if they have lots of support and they can just focus on kind of running that money following the process focusing on great companies you know building a good portfolio all that stuff and they don't have to think too much about the sort of ancillary side of the business whether it's promoting a fund or um you know more administrative sides of the business if, if a fund manager launches on their own there is a risk that they have to deal with those things they get distracted um Equally, there's a risk that some of the restraints that might be there for a reason aren't there anymore. So one, I mean, there are many, if we want to go into Neil Woodford problems, <laughs> yeah, there, are, there are many, you know, kind yeah. of uh, important factors behind that. But one, one factor that people do point to is the fact that, you know, there was no longer, he, he was head of the company, his name was on the door, and there was no longer anyone with enough clout to kind of say to him, you can't buy these untested, you know, mm. private companies. Mm. That you don't sort of nervously to... going into the office, be like, <laughs> um, any <laughs> deal, please, yeah. Joe, get out. Yeah, might be the last time you go in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. So, yeah, it is, I mean, again, it's kind of a, 
pros and cons point. I mean, well, is and yeah. is the risk with? I mean, I, so I mean, very very good points. All of those is the risk with a big company as well. You get groupthink because that's mm. ultimately what you don't want, is it? With a fund manager, you want individual thought. Yeah. So you you have less than this, I think, than you used to have a few years ago. But you used to, um, particularly at many of the big um, fund firms, you used to have chief investment officers and they would i think part of their job is kind of you know whipping the fund managers if performance is looking dodgy or kind of kicking the tires on what they're what they're investing in but they did sometimes used to take you know what they call house views where they'd say you know we like this region or we like this kind of company Mm. and the managers would to an extent kind of toe the line which isn't necessarily what you want Mm. um or equally you you do see some fund firms and a, a famous one here is Bailey Gifford, where a lot of their prominent funds do kind of share similar processes and actually share some quite prominent kind of holdings. Um, and that's that is great when all those theses are kind of working out. Um, but it does, yeah, maybe it causes problems for the individual teams. And also, it actually causes problems potentially for you as an individual investor because if you're buying fund if you see for example a load of these funds from the same firm are all performing really well in different regions like asia the us kind of globally then you might just kind of snap them all up but they might actually have um substantial kind of crossover and that's not great because you're you're holding a lot more in something you know, sticking with the same example you might be holding a lot more in say tesla a couple of years ago than you realized mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Yeah. um yeah that's an is. interesting point isn't it i've just i was just thinking about the um uh, i think blackrock have a risk management system called aladdin yes is that right yeah they've made a lot of money out of that as well kind of selling it on to other firms and, right yeah so you think got a lot of other firms not just blackrock itself 10 trillion and under management but also other all these other other firms all aligned under the same mm. view of risk management yeah and there is a question mark over whether that's right you know yeah what about uh star fund managers i mean we have mentioned good ones and bad ones there mm. really so terry smith awesome um, Neil Woodford, you know, there are still people with money trapped in his yeah. fund, which went under three years ago or something like. Yeah. Um, so, you know, are they, is it a good idea to go with these great star managers or do you think there's a bit of a, a problem there, you know, a risk? There is a risk. And this this in particular relates to, um, so we, earlier we were discussing the point about open-ended funds have to deal with cash moving in and out of the fund. If you become a star manager, a lot of cash goes into the fund. Mm. And there is a risk that the sheer wave of money that you're then moving from your investors into your investments is unduly elevating prices and kind of distorting prices so fundsmith for example has over 20 billion in it right yes yeah i'm not sure what it is since the sell-off but say kind of late last year when things were still going well it it must have been around 25 billion so the problem is is if you've got a portfolio of um 30 companies yeah then each position requires an enormous sum of money to initiate that position right? yeah so i believe in the case of terry smith i believe he would argue that he tends to invest mainly in U.S. companies and U.S. large cap companies. So they are huge mm. and they are big enough that in theory, he shouldn't really be able to kind of move the dial. But say moving back to uh, Neil Woodford, there is definitely an argument there that kind of the the money he was pushing around was kind of moving prices up. And also just the news that he was investing in it because he was seen as like any style manager. He's seen as some sort of kind of guru or messiah. 
and that kind of when they've moved into a stock that can um, influence sentiment. Yeah, that's I mean, it's, it's great because in America, you actually have star fund managers. Uh, there's a great hedge fund manager called Bill Ackman who mm. frequently goes on on uh, the news wires to talk about these new positions that he's bought. And as you yeah. say, not only the weight of that money going into the position, but of course, his reputation means that lots of people, mainly me, <laughs> not mainly <laughs> me, but you know, lots of people like me, um, are there going, oh, I'll buy that stock. And yeah. um, and that that's, is, is that just market manipulation <laughs> you know <laughs> it may be yeah <laughs> i think i've always found it strange that you mentioned bill ackman and he yeah. you know as you know he doesn't he doesn't just invest in companies going up he um he does you know so-called short selling where he kind of you effectively take a bet on a company's share price falling and then in he, he doesn't he's he says he's moved away from that now he's recently said that but um mm. him and some of his peers over the years have kind of you know said they, they've taken a short position and then they said this company is terrible and then that can and, and some of these some of these firms will kind of um, take the short position and then publish this big thick convincing report explaining why the short position is there that can crash the price and yeah it does seem seems wrong doesn't suspects it? And, to me but and I guess part of the reason why they've stopped doing that is the PR thing GameStop being a, a quite like a famous yes. um, <laughs> example of where um, well, actually, small Reddit retail investors really stuck it to Wall Street, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it's sort of not only is he is he doing that, trashing the company so that he can send the share price down. But of course, there's an awful lot of jobs at risk as well. So there's a sort mm. of ethical question mark, I suppose, over that as well. Right. Yeah. 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 OK, let's get on to some sort of practical things, really. And it's around I wanted to talk to you around building a portfolio. And this can be quite a difficult thing to do um well to sort of know that you're sort of doing it in a way that's really going to get you to your goals you know we can over diversify and we can have too many risky positions or we can put too much in one so i just sort of wondered if you had any um sort of strategies that you might say to people that they would think about when they're building a portfolio yeah so like you say it is it is really tricky i think um but one i mean there are different approaches you could take one approach that has always seemed to make a lot of sense to me is you know what's called core and satellite investing so your core investment is where you put the bulk of your money or you know a large chunk of your money perhaps at least 50 percent, perhaps a lot more what that will probably be is um a relatively well diversified or a set of relatively well diversified funds so this might be your equity trackers that i've mentioned or you might have, you know, what are called multi-asset funds, which tend to hold a mixture of um, equities and bonds. They have shifted a little bit over time into alternatives, but it tends not to be that significant. It's normally more the, the shares and bonds side of things. Um, but yeah, generally, it makes sense to have a big chunk of your portfolio where you just you don't have to think about it too much. And you're just kind of regularly sticking money in there. And then... You know, there are various reasons. Um, and cost, would you keep cost low on that that portion, that chunk? It would, well, again, it, de it depends on your kind of active or um, passive preference because mm. you could use, I mean, if you wanted, you could use some global funds. There are many, I mean, Fundsmith is very concentrated. It has around 30 holdings, but that has served people well. But mm. there are many um, global equity funds that have, you know, a much wider spread of, 
of holdings um, mm. while taking an active approach. Mm. So that is going to raise your costs. Um, but I mean, it's good to keep costs down where you want. And I guess also passive is quite appealing here just because of that predictability we discussed. And you're, you, you know, you are going to fall when the market falls, but you are going to rise when the market rises. Mm. And you, you don't, as long as you have a longish term horizon, you probably want at least five years when you're moving in, in equities. Mm-hmm then you, you can, you know, just keep regularly investing. You can rise us out. And with the regular investing, you get, I'm sure we've discussed the concept of pound cost averaging, mm, where mm. you're buying the highs and the lows. So it kind mm. of um, evens means itself should, out. Yeah, you should just get that kind of upward kind of yeah. hopefully over time, which is what markets tend to do. Okay, fine. So you've got this core, this chunk that kind of hoists you to your goals. Yeah. And then you've got this satellites around around the edge. Yeah, so satellites can serve a number of purposes. So um, you can try and get to areas that won't be covered by your conventional core. So, for example, when I when I talk about um, global equity funds with most active global equity funds or a lot of them and with um, your conventional global passive funds, it's not always as global as you might think. So it tends to be... Um, a lot of it tends to be based around the MSCI World Index, which is a kind of famous market. And that has, um, I don't know what the latest figures are, but in recent years, that's had something like two thirds of its assets in US equities. And it doesn't have exposure really to things like emerging markets, which have had quite a rough decade, to be honest, but mm. in theory should be giving you access to kind of fast growing countries and some of those kind of interesting future trends that we've alluded to. So you might want to be kind of chucking some emerging markets on the side. Um, you might want to, earlier we were discussing themes. There are different ways to kind of get focused themes. So um, you can use exchange traded funds with a, a, a thematic bent and they will focus on things like, you know, I mentioned aging populations or you can focus on new sectors like space um, and to an extent you can access some of those trends via active funds as well um, another satellite kind of approach is um, you mentioned kind of riskier holdings you may want to with your riskier holdings and perhaps this applies to likes of scottish mortgage um, you may want to kind of limit the size of your position you don't you don't want it to make up a massive chunk of your portfolio because you are taking those bigger risks unless you're really kind of risk comfortable investor and that's really what you want to aim for Mm -hmm. but you can bolt on some of those kind of riskier more interesting more targeted plays Mm. Um, and perhaps you could argue i mean i know we're talking about funds but perhaps you could argue this applies to if you still want to dabble in shares as well Mm. you know you probably don't really want to have a big chunk of your portfolio made up by a share or by you know one or two different shares but if you love games workshop for example or you know some individual company then you could kind of take a punt on it and as long as you get the position sizing right say i don't know sometimes people say something like three to five percent though it's very subjective all this stuff Mm. then it's it can make a difference to your returns if it goes well um if it goes badly it will again make a difference but it won't completely wreck your portfolio yes of course of course and of course the other i mean we mentioned shares though but crypto assets as well i mm. mean they could be they could be part of that yeah satellite right yeah i mean that's a great example because that's mm. you know could go horribly wrong or it could turn out to be the future so people may well want to kind of include that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of course if you make big gains in those as well 
and you can rebalance your portfolio and trim off some of those gains so you've locked yeah. them in and then put them into safe stuff right yeah rebalancing like diversification is a it doesn't really quicken the pulse but it's kind of a really <laughs> really important part of mm. your kind of running a portfolio so um people tend to say with rebalancing it makes sense to do it perhaps once every six months to a year okay you, you could do three if you wanted but i think people mm. tend to lean towards six mm. you could also consider doing it say you've had a really big market shift and we have had a big market shift recently or we had you know big market shifts in 2020 mm. it might make sense to um kind of rebalance them because you know what you're doing is as you mentioned you're you're effectively um going back to your original position sizes and you are buying back into those kind of what have been your losers recently provided you haven't totally lost faith in them mm -hmm. and you're taking some of those profits on your your winners so mm -hmm. you're not you know if, if you hadn't rebalanced over the last 10 years and you'd held something like the fang stocks then you would probably be massively weighted to the fang stocks by the time the kind of recent sell-off came mm. so you do mm. um it, it can limit your gains if everything's going well but it mm. is quite a sensible thing to be doing mm. that's right because you would have seen all those gains and then the recent sell-off and you would have lost all those yeah. years of work <laughs> effectively yeah and of course lots of fund managers will do that within those professional portfolios as well that's how they tend to manage those risks around individual positions yeah um many of them actually have limits right so it's no more than 10 percent for an individual position right yeah so this doesn't um okay so clo closed-ended funds investment trusts have their own rules um so they they can the board of the trust can kind of set parameters if they wish to and they do mm. with some things but with a lot of open-ended funds are it's not very exciting but they're subject to what's called the usits regulations like you said you you can't go over 10 percent in one position and then there are certain other rules around kind of how just how chunky a bet you can take on your your biggest mm. holdings good good point actually just Explain briefly why USITs can be like a comforting badge when you're looking at, at funds. Yeah, it just forces a fund to be more diversified. So earlier I said that um, a, lot of, a lot of funds, even if they're really concentrated, probably won't have fewer than 30 positions. I mean, some do have less, say 20 something, but normally it's, you know, at least that, which is quite a good number. Um, and that's because USITS prevents you from having more than 10% in one holding. And it also prevents you from having more than 40% in, I think it's something like 40% if you have five positions that are a certain size or something. I, right, I, I may be garbling yeah. that, but it but yes. effectively kind of forces you to have a greater spread of um holdings so that should offset your risk mm. i mean the, th the thing about concentration is um over the last decade some of the best performers have been concentrated in one way or other so i've i've mentioned fundsmith um there's you know lindsell trains funds which are again quite concentrated the bailey gifford funds are kind of an odd beast because um say something like scottish mortgage they have um i don't know it might be upward of 100 holdings but many of those are tiny they're something like 0.1 percent or something because what they do is they they hold something that looks interesting and looks like it may one day take off or it may go bust and then if it does seem to mature and take off then they kind of let that position size grow and then their bigger positions make up say their biggest 10 positions also make up quite a big 
chunk of the portfolio. So there were times when Tesla shares were absolutely rocketing earlier in the pandemic. And they, um, I believe they kind of moved up to that kind of 10% mark. Okay, interesting. Okay, so, so, so a fund like Scottish Mortgage might have a long list, but that's because it's nurturing smaller companies through to some of the larger ones. Yeah. That you would, those large ones you then w- will find in, in Terry Smith's Fundsmith, but he doesn't have, tend to have the smaller ones. So he'll just have a much more concentrated portfolio yeah. of just these larger kind of names, right? Yeah, that's it. So Terry Smith picks the kind of what he thinks are the best 30 or so, or the 30 or so that meet the kind of um, criteria that, that he and his team set out. Whereas, yeah, Scottish Mortgage is more, they'll kind of... Um, Look more broadly across the market, presumably. Yeah, mm. they'll they'll kind of, this almost sounds flippant, they'll, t- they'll kind of take a bet on a lot of different things. And then if something appears to work out, they will, they will do what's called running their winner well they'll just kind of let it grow and grow mm. and i assume put more money into it and mm. then it will become quite a substantial holding and it will become big enough to um drive good returns if it continues to do well we've mentioned um scottish mortgage and we've mentioned fundsmith of course mm. and they haven't been doing so well recently why is this so they both i mean they they are very different funds um so they, you know, Scottish Mortgage is much higher octane, much more about kind of the future. Um, Fundsmith tends to invest in, you know, I think I believe they say, you know, we don't look for winners. We look for companies that have already won. So they sometimes look for some companies that might be relatively unexciting, like, you know, consumer staples, things that will sell your toothpaste and that that mm. sort of thing, but have very good um metrics. But, but what those companies do or what they sorry, those two funds do share in common is they adhere to an extent to and this is i'm using this term very broadly but what you might call the kind of growth style which i i mentioned earlier where you're to an extent you are paying for um their kind of future prospects and this perhaps applies more to scottish mortgage than, than fundsmith um but so also, when we say growth yeah. we mean companies that are growing something like their earnings or their sales or something above what their peers might be doing or the wider market or some sort of relative right is that what we mean by that yeah they yeah they are well it's difficult because sometimes they aren't necessarily generating kind of profits now but they do have and and this definitely applies to things like big tech in the u.s but they do have growth prospects for for the future so could we could we split it out into these kind of um what we might call quality growth large cap quality growth which are more of those that are doing exceptional things with their earnings and then these kind of future growth kind of businesses is that a good way of looking at that yeah i think there is a kind of um distinction in terms of um kind of how how much patience you're asking of investors for what's happening in the future Mm. and also it kind of it kind of um another difference is almost kind of how exciting that story is because you know some some of these companies are kind of quality and they have um they have things like strong brands or strong intellectual property and very strong metrics you know strong cash flow but maybe they're not very exciting and maybe they're kind of just trundling on nicely now 
Whereas if you're talking much more, I mean, quality and growth get used interchangeably sometimes. Mm. So it's slightly confusing, but, mm. but growth is perhaps more, yeah, those exciting companies and perhaps fits more into what Scottish Mortgage does than some, some of its peers. Right, okay. So you are kind of, you know, looking at some of those, and I'm not using this term derogatory, but more these kind of blue sky yes companies you know they could they could come good in a really dramatic fashion and they could you know multiply your money you know vastly yes but so a good example might be one of these um you know graphene has been one of these things that's been greatly talked about this new material that's meant to solve a lot of our <laughs> problems and there's a lot of companies that are exploring how that's used so that might be a good a good example of a company that sort of um, that might be using that technology, exploring yeah. it, but doesn't know whether or not it will work, right? Yeah, yeah. Neither works out tremendously well or, mm. or it doesn't, but hopefully, say we discussed Bailey Giffords, kind of how they put portfolios together. Hopefully, if you manage it right, you can um, get enough winners to kind of um, make some really good returns. Um, but yeah, the, the reason those two, Fundsmith and Scottish Mortgage, have been doing badly is because those styles of investing are have been really out of favor in the last six months or so and that's because of a few things really so we've had inflation hitting multi-decade highs you know across developed markets and we've had central banks trying to you know put the genie back in the bottle effectively by raising interest rates because that stymies demand and then should cool down the economy and should lower the um prices that you have to pay for things and the cost of living mm. um but when you get those interest rates rising and uh, also with inflation then that makes kind of more economically sensitive businesses more attractive because they can give you cash now so you have your your energy companies you have banks which i mean it, the picture is more complicated with banks but banks are kind of seen as a really good direct beneficiary of, of rising interest rates because they can suddenly start to make money again off of the, the cash that they have mm. from from their customers. Mm. So basically, um, yeah, investors are kind of panicking about um, those quality and growth styles. And, and there's also, and I guess we kind of touched on this with the point about star managers and just weight of money. There's also just the fact that these funds and these styles have been so in favor for the last decade or much of the last decade that there is just more money to come out of them and if you are generally panicking about a stock market crash and you know we have we have now hit i believe in the us you know what's called a bear market where it's down 20 percent from its previous uh, peak you know pe people are gonna kind of get worried and, and sell out of things what would you say i mean like uh I, you know i've got a big slug of my money and in uh, the US stock market, it's, it's loaded with all of these growth names. It's all falling. <laughs> ah, what do I do? Do I <laughs> do I buy more or do I sell? Or you know, what's the best thing to do when you're looking at markets panicking and you're worrying about the value of your wealth falling? So if things are falling, um, it I mean it can make sense, but not too much. It can make sense to question. And this more relates to individual funds and shares, but it can make sense to question, you know, has the investment case changed? So you might ask, and this is a valid question, you might ask with tech companies, you know, how much do interest rates um, lower the value of their future earnings, which is what investors have been trying to work out for recent months, which mm. is partly why everything's in, in disarray. Um, but generally, 
the worst thing you can do is sell in a falling market because what you're doing is you're taking a paper loss and turning it into an actual loss. Mm. So you want to at least stick with things. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're adventurous, and the, the problem is you never know the bottom of the market, and we still, like I said, we still don't know the extent to which changing conditions will endure and to which they will affect those kind of um, now kind of like beaten up tech stocks and that kind mm. of thing. Mm. Um, if you're adventurous, you could think about kind of um, buying in if you if you can afford to do it. Um, but one other thing I would mention that's quite useful is. Um, so. Yeah, what some investors might be realizing is if you've been investing for a few years and you've had this big market crash, you might suddenly be realizing that your portfolio is massively skewed to these so-called growth and quality investments because they have been the only game in town Mm. for that period of time. So it's been very easy, particularly if you haven't been rebalancing, it's been very easy to just, you know, get massively too skewed to them and not have a properly diversified portfolio. Mm. If everything in your portfolio is down by huge amounts or most of it, then yeah, that's a sign you perhaps need to be more diversified. So you might want to be putting money into um, kind of funds with different styles or different, you know, sectors. Some of the things I mentioned, like financials maybe. And one way to rebalance your portfolio without selling into a... um, into a falling market is simply to do that is to kind of allocate to um, say kind of a bit to kind of value funds rather than growth funds. And then that will naturally diminish the presence of kind of growth in your portfolio. Mm. But it is, as as we've said time, time again, it is so important to be diversified. You know, people, people still don't know whether some people suspect that we're now in this kind of longer term, high inflation, rising interest rate environment. Some people argue that perhaps we're actually already coming to the end of it. Um, and that has big implications for things like um, the tech stocks, has big implications for, we mentioned earlier that, you know, you use bonds as a kind of buffer. Government bonds, which have been the buffer for a long time, have really gotten hit hard by this by this sell-off because bonds hate inflation and they hate rising rates. But you may now be at a point where, again, they could start, to actually work and do their job mm. so it is good just to have a bit of everything you know you can tilt one way or another if you have views but again that's why the core satellite um approach is so useful because if you have a spread of everything in a market mm. or you know a lot of exposure then you're already pretty diversified and then you can just use those satellite positions to kind of take the bets that you you think will pay off or you think are more interesting final question for you David, or just on ESG, actually, you know, it's become an enormously popular strategy. And I think at one point last year, it was like seven pounds and every 10 was going into ESG mm, strategies, yeah. you know, like it was, it's become this big thing. Um, but um, again, because those funds tend to invest in a lot of quality companies as well, it's been caught up in some of these mm. falls and we're seeing some of those strategies suffering uh, recently. And what we've talked about quite a bit in in the pod is this sort of some of the issues around greenwashing and and um, the issues with data and and um, it all just seems like it's a, it's an industry that's become enormously popular. Well, it's sort of a, a strategic approach, sorry, that's become enormously popular relatively quickly. Is it is it is it still too infant? Should we be putting too much money in these types of strategies, or do you think they're the future? 
Yeah, it's it's so it's so divisive. And you've seen you've seen some very kind of critical comments about ESG recently from, for example, someone senior at HSBC the other week. Mm. Um I mean clearly things like climate change are an enormous issue and you know, the more you can focus on on that the better. And there's there are statistics about um, you know, if you were to put your pension, for example, into ESG strategies, then that's the equivalent of taking X number of cars off the road and and all sorts of things like that. Mm. Um, It is important. Um, I wouldn't say it's nascent or infant in one respect because you do have ESG investors who've been doing it for decades, but it's perhaps, yeah, perhaps it is infant and nascent in the sense that um, some, as you said, it's now a huge source of money. It's now it's now seen as kind of one of the saving graces of an active management industry that's been struggling against passives for years. So you do have, and you mentioned greenwashing, you do have kind of fund managers who haven't really had an ESG focus. And then lo and behold, mm. in the last year or two, they've yeah. suddenly, suddenly popped seen up in the, the light. Yeah, it's funny yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's some this isn't fair to everyone but there's some horror stories of certain asset managers have basically just stuck the word sustainability on their fund names so and haven't changed their their process Mm. so you you have to be really careful if if you do care about kind of esg what whatever element of it is you know that it's so subjective you do need to look even more carefully at the funds and kind of and, and what they hold you know for example I've mentioned um, Tesla a few times, mm. and Tesla is such a controversial company for many reasons, and it it doesn't really. Some people might see it as a good kind of ESG holding, but it doesn't really appear in many ESG funds. Mm. Um, it's ma- it's mainly Bailey Gifford funds again, actually, that kind of their positive change funds, for example, that, that tend to hold it. So mm. it's just, yeah, it's important to kind of try and decide discern whether they're doing the job um if it's an active esg fund and whether it fits with your views and you can look at things like you know these quite hard to find but funds release annual reports that you can normally list all their holdings and that kind of thing you can dig in through their commentaries and um try and get a view yourself um i would also say that you know esg is now a really big thing in the passive industry as well um, so you have lots of exchange traded funds that have an ESG tilt. And again, that side of the industry has been rapidly converting or at least rebranding some of their funds into kind of sustainability or ESG versions. Um, again, you need to look quite closely at the methodology. That can be, again, hard to dig out. But the way basically, you know, the fund tracks an index and it's important to look at the how the index is built, what methodology it has or at least look at its holdings because um, you you get stricter and lighter passive um, ESG funds. Mm. So to give one example, a stricter set of kind of indices that um, trackers will follow is the MSCI SRI range. Mm. Um, but even that range still, uh, I believe their version of the MSCI UK index that will still have Rio Tinto in. As a, as a big holding hmm. because w- what they do is they have a an, an element i believe of sector neutrality so they'll basically 
they'll still have exposure to something like oil and gas, but they'll just have the kind of the best of the bad bunch. Yes. So you have to be really careful um, about kind of looking at the holdings and looking at how a fund is built, whether it's by an active team or a passive team. Okay, fine. So you really need to. There's just there is an enormous um, width in terms of the the labelling and the process, isn't there, with ESG? And um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned SRI there. I mean, that was almost like the precursor to the whole uh, sustainable and responsible um, investment funds yeah. kind of popped up first, I believe. And then, and then with and then of course you've got impact funds, which are very much trying to find companies that are actively, positively trying to mm. do something good in the world, rather than change away from doing something bad let's say yeah yeah so really important to go underneath the bonnet of those funds yeah and, th and there are issues as well with um i mean you, you talked about how hard hit esg funds have been this year and they've actually some of those kind of global and us esg funds have, have suffered the worst or among the kind of worst suffering names um one problem has been so you know you you can be influenced by one of the letters over the other and sometimes the g the, the governance can have quite a big impact and that's why some kind of global esg funds will have um big exposure to some if not all of the the so-called fang stocks and that's because they have good governance or you know also weirdly on the environmental side they they don't emit a lot of carbon or whatever but it's not it's not necessarily you know what some someone might not necessarily view microsoft as kind of like your great positive social change stock you know you may disagree but it's um there has been a little bit of kind of coalescing around certain names that do tick certain boxes but also even if they, they're not doing anything terribly offensive they do kind of seem a little bit out of place mm. Mm. okay well David, I think we have covered pretty much everything <laughs> possible there. Uh, it was a really wide-ranging interview. Absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Um, hope to have you on the pod again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Well, a very big thank you to Dave Baxter once again for that really interesting interview. I thought we just we covered off some really interesting things there around funds. Please send me an email at marcus at stepstoinvesting.com if you've any questions or indeed you'd like me to ask any questions of Dave at Investors Chronicle. Now we've got four weeks off, as I said. You've got that interview with Merchants Trust, which is up tomorrow. Please give that a listen and let me know what you think as well of that. I'm off for a much needed break. I hope you all have a lovely four weeks when we'll be back with some more awesome interviews for season five. Until then, goodbye.